All right. How's everybody doing tonight? Hey, a uh, special welcome to visitors. Uh, glad you guys are here. If it's your first time, welcome. Uh, I hope that you get something out of our community. Uh, community first. I think that's such an important part of what we do, getting to know the people around you and feeling like you are literally a part of a family or of a community. That's, that's number one. Uh, and then number two is to preach the word preach the word. So uh, I hope that you like scripture. I hope that you like a lot of scripture and maybe the occasional Greek lesson for those of you who were here last week. Um, sorry, not, uh, it's not an entire Greek lesson. There's only one, only one this time. Wow. But it's a cool one. So I think you'll like it. But uh, we are in the book of Romans. So we're teaching our way through the entire book of Romans. And now for those of you who are maybe uh, playing catch up a little bit, you can go to our website uh, or through Google Play or iTunes and you can catch our podcast and get caught up on the previous messages if you'd like. But just a quick recap, um, in Romans, Romans is, we call it the book of Romans, it's a, it's a letter. And in Christianese words, it's an epistle. It's an epistle, which just means letter, that the Apostle Paul was writing to this church in Rome, this brand new church. They were, they were taken off um, and they were doing pretty well, but they needed to be kind of uh, guided, if you will, in the right direction on some of their doctrine and some of the things that they were thinking and teaching and just some things they were struggling with. And you'll see that the things that they struggled with back then are kind of the same sorts of things that we struggle with now. So as we go through uh, this scripture, you're gonna kind of see how things um, that were going on then, you know, think about this. This was, this was almost 2,000 years, 2000 years ago, basically, that, that the Apostle Paul was writing this, and it's stuff that we deal with all the time. So the very first thing, before we even get into that, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever in your life felt that you were promised something? You were promised something, and then you had to sit by and watch someone else receive what you thought you were promised. Anybody else ever had that? Now, this could, be, this could be a parent saying, hey, you get to ride in the front seat, and then, you know, when you're loading up the car, all of a sudden your older brother is there, and what the heck? It could be something just that trivial. It could be something big. What if it's something that you feel that God promised you? God promised you, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to bless you in this way. I'm going to bring you to this place. Whatever it was that you felt God promised you, and maybe it hasn't come true yet, or maybe, from our point of view, it looks like maybe someone else got to reap that promise. Someone else got to receive that. Well, that's exactly where we are as we go into, uh, we're going into chapter 11 now. And chapter 11, we see Paul writing this letter, again, this epistle to this church, basically trying to reassure them. So he's spent the last few chapters trying to basically reassure this church, which is made up in large part of Jews. Or they're Jews who have come to believe in Christ, and they're starting to call themselves Christian, but to a large part, they still think of themselves as Jews. Certainly, they still have family members and relatives and friends and all kinds of things who are still Jews. So they're not, for the most part, they're not just saying, hey, the Jews are dead to us. Let's move on. They're very much still a part of that culture. And then this church in Rome is actually made up of a mixed group. So you have these, 
these Jews or former Jews, and then you have this group called Gentiles who are, are made up of Greeks and Roman citizens and all kinds of beliefs from all over the place. And so this church is mixing together. But right now, in, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, again, remember, this whole book of Romans is just a letter. It's just a letter that this apostle is writing to this church. And you can see his train of thought as it kind of ebbs and flows, and he thinks of different ideas, and, oh, I need to share this with you, and I need to share this with you, pretty much like we would with, with any letter that we're writing, right? But chapters 9 through 11 really, really deal with the issue of God's sovereignty, the issue of the fact that a sovereign God has a plan and he's made a promise to the nation of Israel, but the nation of Israel has fallen flat. They have failed to live up to what their part of it was, and so God, being sovereign, reserves the right to revise his plan and say, I'm, I'm gonna get what, what I need done, I'm still gonna get it done, but I plan to use you, but you're not really holding up your end of it, so I'm gonna switch gears. We're gonna set you aside for the moment and we're gonna use these people, meaning the Gentiles, we're gonna use them as the new carriers of the gospel to the world. That's where we are in these sections, chapters nine through 11. We call them chapters, they're just paragraphs to Paul, but this is where we are. And then we go into chapter 10, and chapter 10 talks about how even though Israel completely missed the boat on just about everything that he was trying to get through to them, that he still loves them, that they're still his chosen people. And although things don't look that way, he has a plan for them. He is still faithful and he still has a plan. And not only does he have a plan, but he's made it very, very easy to achieve salvation in Christ. He's boiled it down to just two steps. Remember those two steps. Those two steps come right out of Romans 10, 9, which says, I'll just read it to you, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that gift of salvation in Christ Jesus, really all it requires from us to activate that gift is just belief. It's just faith. So we have to have faith, and then we also have to confess that out loud. So this is where we are. You just have to be obedient and confess that faith out loud. But what if, and this is what the mindset, imagine that you're sitting in this crowd again. You're, the, you're this church in Rome, and Paul has written this letter to instruct you on the things that you're going through, and he's telling them, you haven't been forsaken. God still has a plan for you, but <laughs> there are many in this group who are starting to think, wait a minute, that plan, that covenant, going all the way back to the days of Abraham, that covenant where, where God told Abraham, that I will bless nations through you. I'll be their God, they'll be my people. And that's my covenant to you. So they've rested on that ever since the days of Abraham. They've said, hey, we're, we're special. We're special and we're set aside. God has promised us we're his people. And they, in some cases, have taken liberty with that to do pretty much whatever they want. Now, they strictly adhered to the law, yeah, but they had no idea what the heart behind the law was. So they were getting a lot of things wrong but they feel that they're beneficiaries. They've been made this promise by God. And here they are now looking around them going, what are we? Have we been set aside now and God's now 
offering this promise to just anybody? We were promised that. We were his chosen people. What's up with that? How does that work? And they're really struggling with that. They're really struggling with the idea that their chosen people have somehow maybe been abandoned. But this is what Paul is is talking about in this chapter. Despite what they were starting to believe, despite the the murmurs and and the arguments and the things that were happening, Paul wants to remind them that God is a loving father and he is relentless in his pursuit of his children. No matter what they do, no matter whether they're rebellious or they're right or they're wrong or they know him or they don't or they acknowledge him or they don't, he is relentlessly pursuing them. Now, it's still their choice. He's not going to take their hand and drag them somewhere they don't want to be. It's still their choice, but he will never give up trying. He will never give up trying. And so, as we go into chapter 11, I think it's important to jump back to the last verse in chapter 10. Okay, this was the last verse, chapter 10. This is Romans 10, 21. I'll just read it to you. But as for Israel, he says, now he says, and it's in quotes here, and he's going all the way back to Isaiah. Isaiah was Old Testament, written 700 years prior to when Paul is teaching this, okay? A long time ago. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Okay, this is Father God saying this. I have stretched out my hands to these people. They're disobedient. They're obstinate. But my hands are still out to them. That's the end of chapter 10. That's where we were last week. So let's roll into chapter 11. Chapter 11 opens up with Paul reinforcing that idea. Now he's got to revisit this again and again and again because it's a hard concept. They've been raised with this idea that they are God's chosen people, the carriers of the covenant. And now they're seeing things are just getting turned upside down. This is not at all what they thought it would look like. And they're struggling with it. So here's where we are. Romans 11, verse 1. We've got that on screen. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For those of you who are new here, may it never be is something Paul loves to say that. It's like, heaven forbid. May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is saying, look, you call me an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I haven't been rejected. I'm one of you. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. So he's saying, look, I'm an example of this. I haven't been just cast aside. That's not how this works. But then he goes on. Then he goes on. Since the nation of Israel had failed to to earn or achieve their salvation, remember salvation is a gift through faith in Jesus alone, and they were trying to earn it through working the law as best they could. But it wasn't working for them. And so in Romans 11, 7, we have Paul saying this, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. What they were seeking, what were they seeking? They were seeking righteousness and salvation through the law. Remember, they thought the better they could follow the rules, the better they could, could, could dot every I, cross every T, and live the, their entire life according to the rules, the better they could do that, the better chance they would achieve salvation. Paul here is telling them then, hey, what they were after, 
They haven't gotten it. But those who were chosen obtained it. The chosen here, he's referring to those who have converted. Those Jews who have come to accept Jesus. And the rest were hardened, meaning they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. Remember, the vast majority of the nation of Israel still did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. There were only a few at this point who had opened their eyes and had seen that. He's calling them the chosen in this case, and the rest, the rest were hardened. So, as for the rest, Paul goes in and he talks about this a little more. Now, again, he's quoting Isaiah here when he says this. This one we do have on screen. This is Romans 11.8. Just as it is written, remember if it's small case, that's Paul speaking, large, uh, all caps, he's not yelling, that's, that's Paul quoting Old Testament scripture. So just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. So if you think about that, what he's saying here is those who were not the chosen, God actually hardened their hearts. He gave them eyes not to see and ears not to hear. So it was God's plan that some of them would not accept Jesus at this point. That's an interesting thing to wrestle with, isn't it? If God's heart is for everybody to come to a knowledge of who Jesus is and to accept him and achieve that salvation, why would he take such a large group of his chosen people and harden their hearts so that they wouldn't know? Again, this is a struggle, and he's trying to teach this to him. Again, he's quoting in, uh, in the next verses, Romans 11, 9, and 10. It's right after this, and I'll, I'll just read these to you. Now he's quoting Psalm 69. This is, this is David, or King David, saying this. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Bend their backs forever means be enslaved. They'll, be sl- they'll carry a burden, their backs hunched over. They'll carry a slave. Their table become a snare and a trap. What he's talking about is let them be lulled into this false sense of security by their abundance. The table he's referring to is their feasts that they were so fond of having. Let their feast table be that very thing that helps to darken their eyes and lull them into this false sense of security. This is where they are. And they, in, in essence, they become slaves to their own comfort and, and blessing. So why would God do this to his chosen people, his chosen nation? Why, why would he allow this uh, or, or worse yet, cause this to happen? Paul gives us an idea. He goes a little bit further. This, and we've got this one on screen too. Romans 11, 11 to 12. I say then, They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Okay, let's take this apart just a little bit. They did not stumble as to fall, did they? So the nation of Israel stumbled. They stumbled. They're getting it wrong, but they haven't fallen. They're still around. They're still strong. They haven't been destroyed like so many other nations before them. They're still here. 
They're just kind of set aside for now. But by their transgressions, by, by everything they've done wrong, salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make the nation of Israel jealous. You ever have something, especially refers to kids, they don't want it until someone else has it, right? Could sit there forever, I, I, don't, I don't want it, I don't care about that. Now somebody else takes it and, oh, that's mine and you can't have it. And now this is my best possession ever, which I didn't even care about two seconds ago before you did. That's exactly the dynamic he's talking about here. But he's saying, if their transgression is riches, meaning the world gets blessed through Israel's failure at this point, is riches to the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? So he's saying when it does come, when it is Israel's time, how much more special will it be? Follow this train of thought here. This is important. Now, this is where our, uh, our little Greek lesson comes in. Okay? First of all, God used the transgression of Israel to accomplish two things. Number one, to make the nation of Israel jealous. Make them jealous because now the Gentiles were getting what was promised to them. Remember I talked at the beginning and I asked about that promise that somebody else got that you thought was due to you? Think about why Jews in general to this day sometimes, now it's not open, open hatred, but it's some tension between Jews and Christians because some Jews believe that our thought is, and for many of us it is, our thought is, hey, that covenant that God promised you, that's done. We're the new covenant. You're done for. We're the chosen ones now. God made his promise with us because you guys dropped the ball. That causes some tension there if you don't have an understanding of what this means. We're going to go into it a little bit here. But the Gentiles, because of this and the jealousy being stirred and the Jews now starting to question and, and maybe sort of seek God in a new way, the Gentiles get drafted, grafted in, grafted in to what is called this tree of life. The tree of life that we're going to go into the, the illustration here of an olive tree. Now, the olive tree all over the Mediterranean, all over that region, is really just a, it's a symbol of life. Okay, not only for its fruit, but its, its ability to grow in places where it shouldn't. And it's really just a symbol of life. And that's what Paul is going to use for an illustration here in a minute. But before we get there, I want to talk to you about the, that last verse here where it says, how much more will the fulfillment be? Sometimes you have to look at the root of these words because Greek and, and Hebrew is so much more meaningful a language than our American, especially American English. That word fulfillment when you look at it down here at the bottom, how much more will their fulfillment be? That word fulfillment translates as the Greek word pleroma. Okay, now it's not super important that you remember that, but remember what the word pleroma translates into. It's a shipbuilding term, actually a, a, a maritime or a sailing term that, that refers to that by which a gap is repaired. It's the act of patching a leak or repairing permanently. So essentially, that little phrase, which we would be tempted to just read it over really quickly, how, how much more will their fulfillment, their fulfillment be? What Paul is telling them and what they would have understood in their native language, that he's saying that what has leaked through the cracks and is missing 
will be restored and that gap will be repaired. It's a little bit richer meaning than sometimes we just fly through when we're just reading it. But think about that. He's talking about a restoration. This means a promise of permanent repair, permanent restoration of that which has been lost. So with that in mind, he goes in here, Romans eleven fifteen. Paul continues, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Literally, they're being raised from the dead. You thought that, that the Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel, was dead and buried and gone? Mm-mm. When they accept, when they accept this truth, when the time is right, it's going to be like resurrection from the dead for them. And it'll be a joyous time. It'll be a joyous time for everybody. So this is what he's talking about. Paul, now he shifts. Remember, this is a, this is a human being. Paul is just a human being chosen by God to write this letter because of who he is, because of how he speaks, because of the authority he has, because of his trains of thought. This is why specific people were chosen to write books of the Bible. Inspired by God, yes, but able to say it in a way that translates to their people. And so follow Paul's kind of human train of thought here. As, as I'll read it to you. It's Romans 10, 16. So Paul's, Paul's grappling with this idea, and he says, how can, I, how can I transmit this idea? How can I illustrate this to this people so they get it? Because remember, he's tried by now, this is our third chapter of him trying to tell them, hey, God hasn't forgotten you. Okay, your, your resume doesn't mean much, but that's okay. Who God is is what's important. He's trying to get that through, and you can see kind of one more attempt here. So Romans 10, 16, he says, now, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. Okay, that's just, that's, let me stop right there. The first, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. Okay, this was common. <coughs> this was a common illustration that they used for things like that because if you were going out on a ship or you're going out in the ocean or especially the nation of Israel when they, take, when they took the unleavened bread through the desert, things like that, if it doesn't have yeast in it, it's much more compact. And so if you're going to take bread with you on a ship somewhere, you would just take the unleavened or no yeast dough because it's stored better. But if you get any yeast in that, it influences the entire batch. Even just a little influences the whole batch. And so this is what he's talking about. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump, the larger, is also. Okay, meaning the lump has the same attributes as the smaller piece and vice versa. But then... He immediately, I don't know what he's thinking here, but he immediately just abandons that train of thought and he goes, I have a better one. Because that's all we hear about the lump and the whole dough. He stops there and he goes, but wait, I have a better one. So if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. So he shifts from the, the lump of dough into a tree with the root, and the root being holy. And if the, if the root is holy and special, so are the branches. The branches will have all the attributes of the root. The root will give life to the branches. He's trying to use that metaphor. So Romans 11, 17, 18, he talks about this a little more in depth. But if some of the branches were broken off, 
And you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is you, that it is not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. Okay, it's the root. It's the root that supports the branches, not the other way around. Now, he's talking about the wild olive. Wild olives, he's talking about the Gentiles in the room specifically. Okay, the Gentiles in the room, they didn't have a covenant. They weren't God's chosen people. They were just was wild olive. They weren't cultivated. They weren't trained. There was nothing. They were just wild, just growing up somewhere. But he's saying, hey, if we're going to graft you into this life-giving root, which is the covenant promise from God to Abraham and then to the, to the nation of Israel, if we're going to graft you in there, that's great for you, but don't be arrogant for a second because this isn't about you. It's still about that life-giving, that root and it's the root that makes you holy. Meaning it's the covenant of God to the nation of Israel, to, to those people, which still remains and is still what we are grafted into. And if we are holy and we are righteous and we are justified in God's eyes, it's only because we are grafted into that covenant. This is what he's talking about here. And this was a well-known analogy. This actually goes all the way back what Paul is talking about goes all the way back to Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah, again, Old Testament scripture, hundreds and hundreds of years before, where Jeremiah says this. Jeremiah says to the nation of Israel, he says, The Lord once called you a flourishing olive tree, beautiful with well-formed fruit, but with a mighty roar, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. That sounds ominous, right? But here's what he's talking about. This is, now, Jeremiah was a prophet, and he's actually warning the Israelites that trouble's coming. He's warning them, saying, hey, very soon you are going to be attacked, and you're going to be conquered, and you're going to be literally burnt to the ground, which actually comes to pass. But notice how he says here that the branches will be consumed, he does not, and he goes on in that scripture, but he never once references the root being destroyed. And we saw this all the time when there were wildfires. The root would be okay. The branches are consumed, but the root's there, and it's that root that contains the essence of life of that plant, and it's what gives life then to everything that comes after it. So this is what he's talking about. The branches will be consumed. The root, again, God's covenant promise to the people of Israel, but, and he's telling them that it's going to flourish again. It will flourish again, and in fact, it did after about a 70-year period of exile where they were conquered and they were kicked out and they roamed around. About 70 years later, they came back and they began to then flourish again as a nation. This was the prophecy of Jeremiah, but that's what Paul is referring to when he's using this analogy of the tree. But again, he has to go back and he's warning them again. Now, you can see, just see how he goes back and forth. Now, he's going back again and he's warning them to watch their hearts towards the nation of Israel. Don't start thinking that they're over. And he says this in Romans 11, um, 19 to 21. You will say then, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Okay, it's not the adherence to the law, it's faith that allows them to be grafted in. Okay, you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, meaning the people, okay, the people of Israel were the original natural branches. If he didn't spare them, he'll not spare you either. Don't ever get cocky about this. It's all about God and his promise. It's not through anything that you did. So I want to take just a second and talk about, I I mentioned earlier, I kind of alluded to the fact that a lot of uh, a lot of Jews historically have had an issue with Christians because a lot of Christians believe in this theory or a theology called replacement theology. You ever heard about that? Anybody ever heard of replacement theology? Replacement theology essentially says, this is the idea, and many, many people adhere to it, many, many. It's not, it's not some crazy offshoot. It says that the nation of Israel received God's covenant through Abraham, but they blew it. They blew it so bad that God said, I'm done with you, turned his back on them and said, okay, that promise for them, now it's your promise. And he gave it to the Gentiles, who was us. Unless you're a Jew in the room, we are the Gentiles. That's replacement theology, saying God had this plan for the Jews, they couldn't handle it, they couldn't live up to it, so they're done. And now it's the Gentiles' promise. It's their covenant. Can you see how if you were a Jew raised in that and you were given the original covenant through Abraham, you would be thinking, God never says he revoked that covenant. And you guys are walking around acting like like you're it, and we're lucky just to be here. That can cause a lot of problems. That's what replacement theology is. It's also called supersessionism, if you ever heard that term. Essentially, it's just that the new covenant of Jesus invalidates the old covenant. It's God just basically shaking the etch-a-sketch and saying, start over. That's what this is. But I want you to hear this. A plan, God's plan might be revised. God's got a plan for all of us. And based on our reaction to that plan, our faithfulness to that plan, he reserves the right to, reserve, to, to revise that plan as many times as he has to. Okay, that's his plan. His plan is the path he wants you to walk. We get the ultimate choice in that and we fail a lot of times. Sometimes we do good, sometimes we don't. But that's a plan and a plan can be revised. A covenant is a promise. A covenant literally says that I will promise you this. Everything I'm promising you right now is because of me. It's not whether you accept it or you do the right thing or you don't do the right thing. I will do what I'm promising you today regardless of what you do or you don't do. That's a covenant and that's God's heart. That's God and that fits his character. A God that would turn his back on you because you blew it does not fit the character of the God that I know and that I understand. So moving on, moving on, Romans 11, 23, 24, we've got this one too. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, this is the Jewish people. I want you to listen to this in light of that replacement theology. They also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. If you have ever been an adherent of replacement theology, 
uh, or know anybody who is, that sentence right there entirely refutes that. God is able to graft them in again. For if you are cut off from what by nature, for what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Okay. This scripture entirely refutes that replacement theology and it's not what I what I personally believe. The idea, it's actually the exact opposite of that. It's called dispensationalism. So if you want to seem smart, just drop that in a conversation sometime. I believe in dispensationalism because, you know, if you read Romans 11, 20 to 24, um, so, but that's what that is. And it's important to understand. It's important that you get that. Because when we start thinking, I know God had a promise for me. I know he had things. I know I've been promised. I've heard a prophetic word. I've felt that I heard directly from God that I had a promise, but I didn't see it happen. In fact, it looks like somebody else got that. Maybe I blew it too bad. Maybe I didn't go to church enough. Maybe I didn't pray enough. Maybe I didn't pursue it enough. I've heard it taught that if you don't pursue God's heart enough, he's gonna just change his mind and forget about you. Remember, it's not about us. It's not about what we do or don't do. God knows that we're going to drop the ball more often than we, than we succeed. And he still loves us enough to say, okay, that was my plan. And he didn't go the way I thought. I've got a new plan. He will always have a new plan. He will always have a new plan. So in this chapter, here's our takeaway. Here's what I want you to take away from this, church. No matter how many times we fail, no matter how grand or how minor our failures are, God's promise and heart for you is reconciliation. And a return, the word in Romans 8, Paul says, we are co-heirs to the kingdom of heaven with Jesus Christ himself. That's God's promise for you. And I believe that God is relentless we still have the ability to muck it up up until the point to where we just say, forget about you, God, I don't want that, and leave that gift on the shelf. This is not a salvation guaranteed for everyone. We have a part to play in this. Thankfully, our, our part is not beyond our reach. Our part is simply to say, yes, I confess Jesus is my Lord and I believe in my heart. I confess, I believe. Now all the rest, I'm gonna try and live the best Christian lifestyle I can. I'm gonna try and manifest the fruits of the Spirit. I'm, I'm gonna share the gospel of Jesus Christ. All these things are things that we are told are good for us. We should live our lives that way in order to have the fullness of life that he wants for us and in fact, to share the gospel with others so that they can receive Jesus as well. So we have a job. But when you just boil it down to salvation, it's so easy. And when you receive that salvation, it's yours, no matter how many times we mess up. So I want to ask you this question. Have you been rebellious to God? Have you been rebellious to God? And do you need reconciliation with him? Have you taken the gift of salvation for granted? <laughs> 
Have you taken that and said, yep, I'm saved, put it on a shelf, point to it, dust it off every now and then, and then lived your life like it didn't matter? Are you in that place? Has your comfort, in this country especially, but has your comfort level lulled you into a false sense of security? Just like it had with the Jews all those years ago. And are you in a place, are you in a place now where you think maybe you've completely blown it? And what God had for you, he could no longer possibly have for you because he knows the things that none of these other people know. Hey, worship team, you guys can go ahead and start coming up. So as, as we conclude this, I thought about, there's one more verse that I want to show you. And I thought about really going into it and digging into it and pulling it apart and showing you what it means. But instead... I'm going to show it to you in a second here, but I just want to pray. I want to pray that God opens your eyes to show you what this verse means to you. And so if you could just receive this prayer with me. Father God, Father God, we thank you that your promises for us all the way back then are still your promises for us, and they're not dependent on how good or how smart we are or how well we know the rules or how many times we go to church. It's got nothing to do with us, Lord. It has everything to do with you. And so, Father, I just pray, I just pray with this, this final word from you that you would show everyone where they sit, places where they have begun to fear. They've begun to fear that maybe things had passed them by and somehow they've missed it. Lord, show them that, that rhema word that you want them to, to know and take it to heart. And church, that final scripture is Romans eleven twenty nine. It says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Our job is simply to have faith, repent, and believe. So as we go into communion right now, if you're new here, we do communion uh, different than some places do. If you, if you confess that Jesus is your Lord, you are welcome to take communion, whether you're a part of this or just visiting or anything else. The way that we do it is at the crosses, both sides, we have juice and bread and gluten-free crackers there, and you just dip. If you want to serve yourself, you just dip into the, into the juice and take that. My wife and I will be up here, and we have bread and gluten-free crackers, and then we have wine, and we would serve you that. But same thing, you just dip it in take communion there but let's do it not just because this is a religious thing we do to finish off a service let's do it with glad and thankful hearts that that promise that God made through Abraham to the nation of Israel all that long ago that we are grafted in now we are a part and partakers in that original promise just as if we were a part of the root itself we are just as holy as that nation of Israel. And it's our job not to, not to scoff or to laugh at them or to think that we're any better, but to realize that everything we have flows through that original covenant. And it's all because of what God has promised us. Amen. Thank you, church.
to 